don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles? Well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy Podcast. I uh, got another quick read today, and we are going to hit one. Uh, I'm really glad Pierre wrote this one. This is by Pierre Richard, um, which I believe I believe I've read something by him on the podcast. Uh, if if I haven't and you do not know of him, definitely check him out on Twitter. Um, and uh, I also encourage you to listen to the Noted podcast uh, because that one's really good. Um, and he has. He has a lot of really interesting points and is a pretty pretty stark Bitcoin maximalist. So he's a good one to get a perspective on. Uh, however, today we are going to read his Medium post that he just hit a day or two ago now, and it is titled Bitcoin Governance. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into Pierre Rochard's piece on Medium. Bitcoin Governance. Why do we care? Bitcoin's governance matters because Bitcoin is the first successful, most liquid, and most widely known cryptocurrency. In the words of Michael Goldstein, quote, Sound money is a foundational pillar of civilization, and Bitcoin restores this powerful tool for social coordination, end quote. If Bitcoin's governance model is flawed, it could prevent Bitcoin from reaching its full potential. If Bitcoin's governance is flawed, Bitcoin's stakeholders should work to fix it. Conversations regarding Bitcoin's governance tend to focus on who the decision makers ultimately are. Perennial candidates include miners, nodes, and investors. The purpose and mechanics of governance are often just implied or even disconnected from reality. Views on the efficacy of past governance are often driven by who, quote, won or lost a specific decision rather than the adequacy of the decision-making process itself. What is Bitcoin governance? Bitcoin governance is the process by which a set of transaction and block verification rules are decided upon, implemented, and enforced such that individuals adopt these rules for verifying that payments they received in transactions and blocks fit their subjective definition of, quote, Bitcoin. If two or more individuals adopt the same set of validation rules, they form an intersubjective social consensus of what Bitcoin is. What is the purpose of Bitcoin's governance? There's a wide range of views regarding what the purpose of Bitcoin's governance should be. What outcomes should governance optimize for? Matt Corallo argues that trustlessness is the most important property of Bitcoin. Matt defines trustlessness as the ability to use Bitcoin without trusting anything but the open source software you run. Without the property of trustlessness, all other positive outcomes are jeopardized. Daniel Krawitz argues 
that maximizing the value of a Bitcoin is what governance de facto optimizes for. Daniel states that, quote, the general rule about Bitcoin upgrades is that upgrades which increase Bitcoin's value will be adopted and those which do not will not. In the context of Bitcoin's governance, these two views mirror the classic divide between deontological and consequentialist ethics, respectively. I favor Matt's deontological approach of focusing on trustlessness. Throughout monetary history, from ancient coin producers to modern central banks, trusting others to produce money has resulted in abuse of that trust. Compromising on trustlessness could help the Bitcoin price find a local maximum at the expense of finding a much higher global maximum. Furthermore, there is no evidence that Bitcoin's price has been correlated with upgrades to the Bitcoin protocol. Perhaps Bitcoin's fundamental value is affected by upgrades. Bitcoin is so illiquid and volatile that the price does not reliably reflect fundamental value. If we can't observe the consequences of an upgrade on Bitcoin's value, the consequentialist approach seems inadequate. Before we can evaluate the current Bitcoin governance process against the stated goals of maintaining trustlessness or increasing the value of Bitcoin, we should attempt to define how the current Bitcoin governance process actually works. How does the current Bitcoin governance process work? The Bitcoin governance process maintains a set of verification rules. At a high level, this long set of verification rules covers syntax, data structures, resource usage limits, sanity checks, time locking, reconciliation with the memory pool and main branch, the Coinbase reward and fee calculation, and block header verification. Amending these rules without trade-offs is no easy feat. Most of these rules were inherited from Satoshi Nakamoto. Some have been added or amended to address bugs and denial-of-service vulnerabilities. Other rule changes occurred to enable innovative new projects. For example, the new Check Sequence Verify opcode was added to enable new scripts. Research Every rule change begins with research. For example, SegWit began with research into fixing transaction malleability. Transaction malleability had become a serious issue because it prevented the Lightning Network from deploying on Bitcoin. Industry and independent researchers collaborated on what eventually became SegWit. Critics have pointed out occasional disconnects between what researchers want to research, user expectations, and what is good for the network's properties. Additionally, academic computer scientists prefer, quote, scientific simulations over, quote, engineering experiments. This has been a source of tension in the research community. Proposal When a researcher has discovered a solution to a problem, they share their proposed changes with other protocol developers. This sharing could be in the form of an email to the Bitcoin dev mailing list, a formal white paper, and or a Bitcoin improvement proposal, or BIP. Implementation a proposal is implemented in the node software by the researchers who proposed it or by other protocol developers who were interested in it. If a researcher cannot implement a proposal or the proposal does not attract favorable peer review, then it will linger at this stage until it is either abandoned or revised. 
While this may give the impression that the contributors to the Bitcoin protocol development can veto a proposal, a researcher can make their case to the public and route around existing developers. In this scenario, the researcher is at a disadvantage if they lack reputation and credibility. Another problem at the implementation phase is that the maintainers of the reference implementation will not merge in an implementation if it is widely seen as contentious by the Bitcoin protocol developers and the wider Bitcoin community. The reference implementation's maintainers have a deliberate policy of following consensus changes rather than trying to impose them. The C++ reference implementation hosted at github.com slash bitcoin slash bitcoin is the direct successor of Satoshi's codebase. It continues to be the most popular Bitcoin node implementation due to its maturity and reliability. To circumvent the reference implementation's maintainers and make consensus changes regardless is as simple as copying the Bitcoin codebase and releasing the proposed changes. This happened with the BIP-148 User Activated Soft Fork, or UASF. A proposal to change validation rules can have a soft fork or a hard fork implementation. Some proposals can only be implemented as a hard fork. A soft fork implementation is forward compatible. With a soft fork, the pre-fork nodes do not need to upgrade their software in order to continue validating the pre-fork consensus rules. However, these pre-fork nodes are not validating rule changes made by the soft fork. A hard fork is forward incompatible. Pre-fork nodes will end up on a different network as post-fork nodes. There has been controversy about the effects of hard and soft forks on the network and users. Soft forks are seen as being safer than hard forks because they do not require an explicit opt-in, but this can also be seen as coercive. Someone who disagrees with a soft fork must hard fork to reverse it. Deployment Once implemented in the node software, users must be persuaded to use the node software. Not all node users are equal in their importance. For example, quote, blockchain explorers also have more power as many users rely on their node. Additionally, an exchange can determine which validation rule set belongs to which ticker symbol. Speculative traders, large holders, and other exchanges provide a check on this power over ticker symbols. While individual users may signal on social media that they are using a certain version of node software, this can be Sybil attacked. The ultimate test of consensus is whether your node software can receive payments that you consider to be bitcoins and you can send payments that your counterparty's node software considers to be bitcoins. Soft forks have an on-chain governance feature called BIP9 version bits with timeout and delay. This feature measures minor support for soft forks on a rolling basis. Minor support for proposals is used as a proxy measure for the wider community's support. Unfortunately, this proxy measure can be inaccurate due to mining centralization and conflicts of interest between miners and users. On-chain, quote, voting by miners also perpetuates the myth that Bitcoin is a miner democracy and that the miners alone decide on transaction and block validity. BIP9 is useful to the extent that we recognize and accept the limitations of proxy measurements. Enforcement Changes to the validation rules are enforced by the decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network 
of fully validating nodes. Nodes use the verification rules to independently verify that payments received by the node operator are in valid Bitcoin transactions and included in valid Bitcoin blocks. Nodes will not propagate transactions and blocks which break the rules. In fact, nodes will disconnect and ban peers which are sending invalid transactions and blocks. As Stop and Decrypt put it, quote, Bitcoin is an impenetrable fortress of validation, end quote. If everyone determines that a mined block is invalid, then the miner's Coinbase reward and fees is worthless. The role of miners is to provide a time-stamping function secured with proof of work. The amount of hash rate provided is based on the cost of hardware and electricity on one hand, and revenue from the Coinbase reward and fees on the other hand. Miners are mercenaries, and in the past they have provided their timestamping function without full rule validation. Due to mining centralization, miners cannot be trusted to enforce the validation rules on their own. Has the current Bitcoin governance model resulted in more trustlessness? In my opinion, the current Bitcoin governance model has prevented a degradation of trustlessness. The dramatic increase in on-chain Bitcoin transactions over the past five years seemed to have no end in sight. If Bitcoin's governance model had not been resistant to last year's minor signaling for a doubling the maximum block weight, a precedent would have been set of valuing transaction throughput above trustlessness. Has the current Bitcoin governance model resulted in upgrades that increase Bitcoin's value? I think it's impossible to establish a causal relationship. The price is much higher than it was two years ago, but it seems to be an endogenous process driven by trader psychology, not technological fundamentals. Regarding fundamentals, it's undeniable that Bitcoin's governance has delivered on consensus changes which the Lightning Network depends on to operate. I've been experimenting with establishing channels and making Lightning payments. There is no doubt in my mind that Lightning Network increases Bitcoin's value. And there we have it. That was a good little read from Pierre Richard uh, titled Bitcoin Governance. And I think it's really important, particularly there are very, very polar ideas around Bitcoin governance and who's quote in charge. And like often you see it uh, the narrative spun as if because we didn't get a hard fork, it meant that the Bitcoin developers were just in charge of the protocol, when the protocol is actually designed to not change unless there is overwhelming consensus. So all it means, it doesn't, just because the opinion of either developers or uh, the larger community, whoever it is, it doesn't matter what that opinion is, if it differs from the actual change attempted to be implemented, then it's not, then the, the protocol is going to stay the same. That's simply how it is. It's a resistant to change protocol. So unless there is overwhelming consensus, which there clearly was not, as both denoted by the BCH uh, price and uh, market, node count, mining uh, uh, hash rate, I mean, pretty much everything across the board, proves or demonstrates what the difference between the desire to 
the consensus to change and the consensus to stay the same was. And staying the same is the default. So it is not someone in control of it. It simply means that the protocol is defensible. Um, and that's what we see. Um, and this is a great explanation of how changes are implemented. It's not a fast process. It's a very decentralized and largely annoying process. It comes with a lot of arguments. It comes with heated debates. It just, it's a, it's a messy process, but that's what you get with decentralization because it is hard to coordinate people of separate cultures, of um, separate uh, industries. I mean, you... The, just the difference in priorities between the hardware and software industry and what a hardware engineer thinks is accomplishable versus a software uh, engineer versus somebody who is a specifically a protocol engineer that the, the realm of thinking may be vastly different just in these three um, uh, skill sets. And because of that, they will inevitably have different priorities and come to different conclusions about engineering problems or solutions. So the simple fact of the matter is, with Bitcoin consensus, is you either get everyone to agree with you or nothing gets altered. And that's what we saw with the soft work change of SegWit, is we saw miners, um, a large group of miners, signal for SegWit but at the same time, which, which was widely adopted by the community at that point, I think there was like, um, because the, the signaling for hash power was 95%, and the nodes had already reached something like 80%, somewhere around there. I'll have to, to double-check that, and I may actually write a piece on this specifically because there is a lot of misinformation around the history of that, but uh, the majority of nodes up to that point uh, regardless of the specific percentage, we're now signaling and or were compatible with uh, the SegWit soft fork. And then miners got on board. However, a select group of those miners, and in following them, uh, pretty much all of the other miners, decided they were going to signal for something called SegWit 2X, which was essentially saying, we will give you SegWit, but we're going to attach it to our software, which breaks the consensus rules and forces you to also install something that you do not have consensus on. So there was wide consensus on SegWit regarding all the node and miners, but the miners were holding it hostage in the, in the claim that if you want SegWit, you're going to get it with this software that makes this other change that everybody has clearly stated and shown with their nodes and their own uh, signaling that they did not want. It's kind of like a, uh, 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 what's the word, um, when you tag something onto the back of a bill, it's like everybody wants that bill to get through Congress. An earmark. It's an earmark. It was an earmark change to Bitcoin. Here's the thing that you want. By the way, on the back of it, we're going to break it and change the rules, and your nodes are going to get kicked off the network. Um, and so it was basically an ultimatum. Either you download our consensus-changing software to get SegWit, or we don't give you SegWit. The user-activated software client, the BIP-148, which was uh, not done by the core developers, but was done with a... Uh, I can't remember the, the username. I'm not even sure we ever knew who it was. It was just a random person. Um, but uh, uh, changed it and released a new client that... Uh, basically said, 
basically called the miner's bluff, said, okay, we're going to install SegWit since you have signaled that everybody is okay with SegWit, but we don't want the consensus change. So if you're holding us to an ultimatum, we'll call you on it. If you want to hard fork yourself off the network, go right ahead. We're going to install it and activate it on this date. And if you want to keep running your software that divides you, that forks you off the network, cool, because we're not going to install it. And luckily, we did not, and the network did not install it because it actually uh, had a, a bug in the software because it was rushed in like a matter of a couple of weeks trying to scramble it together. Um, but the SegWit 2X software actually had a uh, what's referred to as a one-off bug where the, um, the split uh, block height was actually off by one. And uh, because of that, when the SegWit 2X... For- 2x fork even with the small amount of miners and uh nodes that it actually had when it finally forked off it just it died it halted right where it was and it never even got off the ground and that would have happened to bitcoin had the nodes not basically kept the rules safe and prevented consensus from being broken and stuck to the actual bitcoin governance model of a bip proposal testing thorough, extensive testing, and then eventual implementation, and valued the soft fork over the hard fork consensus-breaking rules that would obviously run the risk of a complete network collapse, just like we saw with SegWit2x when everything just halted and stopped dead uh, upon their fork. So that's kind of a really general overview of what happened. Um, It's very bias toward the mentality that I held while watching the entire thing um, because I was running a node. I did participate in the user-activated soft work. I was not okay with the consensus breaking change, and I'm very happy that I wasn't because inevitably it would have destroyed Bitcoin. Um, regardless of what your opinion on 2x is, it was buggy, shitty, rushed code. So it didn't go through any testing, and... <clears throat> I mean, it was put together in a couple of weeks. If anybody thinks that's smart, then they they shouldn't be they should not have any decision making skills or power in this in the process, and rightfully should have been ignored by anybody intelligent or thorough about their decision making and the users themselves in regards to who they should trust. Um, and luckily, they were. So. Uh, uh, Maybe we'll, I'm kind of still looking for a decent write-up um, uh, to go further into detail on this, because I know there are a ton of people who did not have, A, a really good understanding of what was going on, and because of that is essentially having to just re- read this person's assessment versus this person's assessment. And there is some degree of... Uh, truth, I guess you could say, in the opposite perspective, at least in part from from their position, because uh, there are a lot of claims that I think are absolutely ridiculous, but it is decentralized, so you can't really say one person's perspective is right and the, others is, the other is wrong, so I think it's valuable to go deep into each perspective and sort out what's true versus what's an opinion. And some of what I just said is sort of an opinion. It's a claim of intentions, and a lot of it cannot be strictly proven. But because of that, I think the 
perspective is also still very important. Uh, you know, actually, I did do, I did read an article. Hold on a second, let me check something. Okay, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I read, um, this is by Aaron Von Wertham. Yeah, uh, the BitcoinMagazine.com wrote one called The Long Road to Segwit, How Bitcoin's Biggest Protocol Upgrade Became Reality. And I actually did that back on episode 54 of the podcast. So, you know, I'll just actually link to that one because um, that one does a much better job of breaking down um, uh, all the craziness that occurred around that. And that's a really good article. I can't believe I forgot I did that. Um, I definitely encourage you to check that one out. Uh, it's a good one, and I think you'll enjoy it uh, if you want to dig more into the history of SegWit. Uh, with that, we'll go ahead and close this here. I don't want to rant too much about SegWit and the soft fork and hard fork and all that good stuff. If you want to learn more or hear more about it, um, The Long Road to SegWit, episode 54 of this podcast, or of course, uh, type in uh, The Long Road to SegWit on BitcoinMagazine.com as a really good place to uh, dig into it. And honestly, I think that's really fun. That that whole episode was just so crazy, and it was just it was awesome to have actually been there and been part of it. Uh, so I definitely recommend for people who don't know much about it to uh, dig a little deeper. But I thank you to Pierre Richard for this article on Bitcoin governance. Um, it did a pretty good job of laying out the overview and basic principles behind. Uh, how decisions and changes are made in Bitcoin. Uh, be sure to uh, follow him on Twitter and Medium as well. Um, I will be sure to tag and link to uh, his stuff in the podcast. And of course, follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy and Medium as well. And of course, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and share it with all of your friends to get this and all the best Bitcoin content out to uh, everybody in the crypto economy space so that they can get a good sense of understanding and a base of all the philosophy, the history, and some of the technical understanding of what's going on in Bitcoin and the crypto economy at large. And also, if you would like to support the show, you can do so by donating um, to the Bitcoin address that I have in the episode uh, notes. Uh, but you can also uh, purchase a Trezor through my affiliate link. And if you would like to do that, I highly, highly encourage it. I am a stark advocate of hardware wallets as the really the only way to hold any significant amount of uh, Bitcoin that is, uh, that is by far the safest and still easy to use. Um, and I really, really love it. I'm super happy. It took me literally like two or three years to finally break down and purchase a Trezor. And when I did, I finally actually just went ahead and just bought a handful of the hardware wallets, both to experiment and really to try them out to see which one I felt was both the most user-friendly and um, uh, had the best security, um, in my opinion. And basically, the Trezor is my go-to. I'm a huge fan and highly, highly recommend it. Um, if you're holding anything more than, you know, five or $600 in Bitcoin, you never know, like the price moves quickly. It could be worth a whole lot more one day and you don't want to end up in a situation where it's not safe in the interim or you have to make a transition to something better when it's a scary amount of money. So um, definitely, definitely recommend. And if you would like to 
if you are getting one of those treasures, uh, if you could use the affiliate link that I provide in both the episode and in the post, um, that would be a wonderful help. It sends a couple bucks my way uh, and helps out the show. So thank you guys so much, and I will catch you tomorrow on the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys. Thank you.